tonight we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 19 and 20. Last week when we finished off, we had that amazing chapter 17 where God makes the covenant with David. And David's like, oh, I'm going to build you a house for the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord's like, no, no, you're not. But I'm going to build you a house. And that whole covenant promise God made that really speaks of Jesus coming for us. And the new covenant that we have tonight, even with the elements of communion here later on that we're going to partake in. But as we went forward last week, we got into chapter 18 with David's conquest. So as the book of Chronicles is reviewing David's administration, his leadership, his kingdom, this incredible kingdom around 1000 BC, second king of Israel, and all the amazing things God did in and through him and with the people at that time, all the people that shared that covenant with him at that time, like Joab and Abner and all these people that were we're familiar with them, and they're, they're famous names in the Bible, and we learn a lot as we study them. Well, last week we got into that first chapter of his conquest, and we're in a segment of Scripture where there's three chapters in a row about David's military conquest. And tonight we're going to look at the other two of them. And we saw some of this when we were back in Kings and all, Second uh, Samuel and Kings. And, but tonight we get the perspective from Chronicles. And there's some good stuff here, some actually really good stuff for to take to heart uh, with Jesus Christ and the church. So we pick it up in chapter 19, the conquest of David with the surrounding enemies, and we read this in verse 1. Now, it happened after this, that is some time that David had conquered previously other people, some Syrians in the north and Moabites, that Nahash, the king of the people of Amnon, that's directly across their border, modern Jordan, he died. And his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nashash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanun in the land of the people of Amnon to comfort him. And the princes of the people of Amnon said to Hanun, Do you think that David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search out and to overthrow and spy out the land? Therefore, Hanan took David's servants. He shaved them, which is pretty much the worst thing you can ever do to a man in the Middle East with their beards, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks. And he sent, they sent them home pantless, basically. And they sent them away. Then some, then some went out and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Now, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syrian Makak, and from Zobah. So they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Makah and his people who came and encamped before Mediba. Also, the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Uh, this story, the beginning of this story almost seems unbelievable, doesn't it? It's just like you're like, how, how, why? Like when, when you read this text, you just go like, why? Like how does this even happen? Like how does David's goodwill and good intent, sending the comforters and greetings, building, showing respect, returning kindness with kindness, building goodwill, Thinking the good in all things. You know, the Bible says that love hopes all things, believes all things, and endure all things. And David, a man of faith in God and a, a man of empathy and compassion, 
a man that's reasonable and, you know, willing to learn from criticism or grow through his experiences. So David thinks the best, and he, he reaches out like, hey, I, I have this for you. We want to comfort you and send you an encouraging word. But it's not received so well, is it? That's the amazing part of this story. David has such good motives in sending the comforter. And after all, it's God who comforts us in our despair, and yet it's not received. In fact, not only is it not received, it's firmly rejected. See, it could have been not received and said, like, hey, I'm just going to hold off a little bit and see uh, if David's sincere. So let's kind of take that position. Let's say we're the king of Amnon, and we're a new king. And, you know, David's a powerful man. Everyone knows David. And he just whoops everybody and everything, right? So why would you even pick a fight with him in the first place? But he's a sending comforter. Comforter is like, okay, so, well, hang on, guys. Let's just, let's let me see how this plays out. Let's see how this plays out. Like, he didn't have to do something right away to declare war by causing humiliation. <laughs> like, you, you didn't have to poke the bear in the eye right away. You can say, well, let's just see what the bear's doing. Is the bear sniffing around the campsite? Like, you know, let's just, let's see where this goes. Like, the folly, the sheer folly in this story is really incomprehensible. When you really meditate on this study and this story and these people, it's like, this guy, he, his leaders, these princes made a bad decision. He followed their bad counsel. It affected all the people. It cost them probably millions of dollars of equivalent wealth and tens of thousands of lives. And they become full-on slaves. So instead of building an economic alliance and a trade pact and agreement, they make themselves slaves. All with a quick reaction instead of reflection and consideration of what's going on. Unbelievable. In fact, the Ammonite people say, it's quite an interesting use of words where they said, well, it's, it says that they saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. It was self-inflicted. They made themselves repulsive to David. It's if you're not good at work and you make yourself repulsive to your boss because you're not a good worker or you have bad attitude or you make yourself repulsive in a relationship because you're a bad person. Like, it's self-inflicted. This whole chapter is all self-inflicted and brought on by bad thinking. Stemming from unbelief, lack of faith, and it's, a, it's just a perpetuation and a compounding effect of what happened from bottom to top. The bottom through the princes to the king, the new king, or the king through the princes to the people. And it's worth considering bad thinking because that's really what happened here. A kind gesture from a great man, and they have a response that really... Now, they're pagans. They don't know the God of Israel. They don't serve the God of Israel. Historically, they've had conflicts with Israel. They've not been the best of neighbors. They've not always been the worst of neighbors. But, you know, there's tribes of Israel on that side of the river, that side of the Jordan with them. And, you know, each generation decides if they're going to get along or not get along, like all those European people or African ethnic groups and uh, even Latin cultures, different people decide if they're going to get along. I mean, Africa, for example, is thousands of different tribal groups of people in the north, in the central, and in the south. And 
if you study African history, which I've been doing, you almost get lost of these dynasties and kingdoms and dynasties and kingdoms. Just studying Ghana was like, oh my goodness, this kingdom, that kingdom, that kingdom, these kingdom, they came in, they overran them, they did this, did that, and they did this. This is 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, slave trade, 1700s, they conquer, this tribe conquers those people, they sell them to be slaves to the Dutch, and then these people conquer them, they sell their people to be slaves to the Swedes, and just, it's just on and on and on. I was studying Oprah Winfrey not long ago just because... Study Oprah, why not, you know? She's the first black billionaire in America, right? So she's worth studying. There's something you're bound to learn from Oprah. One thing I learned about Oprah is that she's 91% Liberian. They traced her Ancestry.com to travel to a travel group there in Liberia, Monrovia, Liberia. I found that very interesting because if you don't know, Liberia was set up by President James Monroe, where they had all these slaves that they were freeing in America, but they didn't want them free in America, so they sent them to, my, to Liberia, to be their own country, Liberia as in liberty. And the capital is called Morovia because of James Monroe. And I just find it interesting that Oprah is from, primarily from this tribal group. See, every generation, we have all these generations where we go back and forth and we do this and we do that. And I said this before, like World War I, you have these allegiances, and in World War II, you have these ones, and post-World War II, like, you know, you have all these different things. So we're fighting with the Chinese in World War II against the Japanese. Then the Japanese become our best friends. And then we fight the Vietnamese in the Vietnam War. And now the Vietnamese are our good friends because they're restrained against China and their globalization and taking over the planet, which they're being pretty successful at, by the way. So when you think about David and the Ammonites, you have to decide how you want to get along with your neighbors. Right? You have to decide what kind of relationships you want with your neighbors. And I mean your neighbors literally in your neighborhood or your co-workers in the cubicles on your floor or the people that live across the fence if you live in El Paso that live in Juarez. Like you just have to decide how you're going to treat people, how you look upon them, different ethnicities and different, like you have to decide are you, are you going to treat people with respect and find common ground for tolerance. Now, it's a funny thing. I have to say this. Years ago, I read a, a school textbook from the 50s. There's a high school textbook on U.S. history. Now, can you imagine how different a history book for the United States would be from the 50s versus now? But I saw the word tolerance over and over in it, and I thought, well, this, okay, so this is a post-World War II thing. After all, you know, 80 million people died in World War II. Tolerance was a big word, and tolerance was the idea of respecting your neighbors and hoping the best, presuming the best, and, you know, like, hey, you can be Muslims across the Jordan River, and we can be Jews over here, and they can be Christians over there in Greece. Let's not all blow each other up, and let's find a way to share the planet together, right? Kind of like that bumper sticker coexist. That's the idea of finding that bumper sticker coexist. It's not saying we're all going to heaven. It says we can try not to kill each other on planet Earth with our various worldviews. What we find is some worldviews are intolerant of other worldviews. And the whole idea of tolerance gets muddled by people who think tolerance is forcing their sin and their darkness upon light and the kingdom which we all understand how that works. Because you can't tolerate evil in your own life, and so you have to speak up against uh, evil that will destroy your family, your community, or your nation. And then we're accused of being intolerant, while people who profess tolerance are the ones who are intolerant. But all that to say, you can get muddled in your thinking, but one thing we see here with David is David extended the olive branch in goodwill to what had been historically an uncertain relationship and potentially a volatile one and he had good intention he meant good and that's how we want to be as followers of Jesus Christ we want to come from faith and confidence in the Lord 
that we have good intentions and in how we look at people. We want to look at people of different worldviews, different ethnicities, different perspectives, and we want to be able to tolerate the marketplace of thought to understand they think differently and not want to blow them up because they do. That's what tolerance really is. It's the ability to, to have dialogue and to wish the best for someone else. So when we're talking with someone from a different worldview and a completely different culture, if we're coming from a biblical perspective, love hopes all things and believes all things, and we want to look at people and realize Christ died for them, whether they want to destroy us or not, and we want to think the best for them. And that's how you eliminate racism and those types of things, by realizing and seeing people the way God sees them and think and hope the best for them. There are people who have lived for 40 years and have no concept of a biblical worldview at all under any circumstance, whether it's pagan and atheistic or different world religions, pantheistic. Uh, and when you, when you show them Christ, you might be the only gospel they see. And so it's really important that we have a disposition to come from faith, to come from faith and think the best and hope the best for people. Because that's what Jesus does. He looks at people and he thinks and hopes the best. Now, we're not saying there's not bad people with ill intention that come into your world, right? Like, Nahan has a basis because we know that can happen. But still, the Bible says the prudent foresee evil and take refuge, but the foolish pass on and are punished. And common sense is the best sense. So obviously, you know, we have discernment. I pray for discernment every day, by the way, and you should too. I do. I, I pray for self-control, patience, understanding, discernment, and to think. That's one of the things I pray over and meditate upon every day. Because I need self-control and I need patience. I need to understand things. I need discernment to rec recognize what they mean. I need to think about it before I act. I'm trying to do less acting and more thinking and more responding and less reacting. See, these guys reacted. I mean, in one day, they pushed the nuclear option on themselves. In one day, they pushed the nuclear option again. They launched their nuke, and it blew up right on them. They humiliated David's. When you do this to the envoy, you're doing it to the king. This what they, this said, they said, this is what we think of you, David. We're going to shave your beard and strip your clothes off. Whew. Happy feelings gone. It just got really serious really quick in the Middle East when this event happened. But David had good intention and good thoughts. These guys, unbelief, ungodly worldview, they're driven by fear. Oh, they thought the worst. And listen, we all know people who think the worst. Don't think the worst. Think the best. Think the best, and then you can kind of recalibrate if you have to rethink something and discern and understand it. But think the best. David had a heart for God, and we see here, he's thinking the best. He's, he wants to build bridges. Let's have an economic treaty. Let's work together. There's resources in Ammon that aren't here, and there's resources that we got that aren't there. Let's make friends. Let's build a bridge. What these guys did, this king, his prince, his princes, his council of princes and his people, uh, yeah, it's just called stinking thinking. It's just bad thinking. It's negative thinking. It's unbelief. It's thinking the worst. And it, it can only perpetuate poison and toxins upon all who embrace it and think like them. It was poison from the top down. And it's just a, it's a council of fools. And you might say, who hired these people? <laughs> it's funny in the woke era to watch people rise up and get fired when they go woke and go broke. And you think, who hired these people? Like, 
like, there was a conversation in my house the other day, because I don't watch the news, and, and they were talking about something like, wait, what happened now? Wait, you're kidding me. They did that at a commercial? And this is their primary target? You're kidding me. Yeah, and they lost $500 million and got fired. You're like, who hired these people? Like, who hired these people? And you might say here in this text for this king, who hired the princes of Amnon? Because these guys are absolute nitwits. And it cost them all their economy, all their peace, and thousands of lives. In our own little world, we can do the same. Think the best, hope the best, move toward the best. And if you need to do something other than that, God will give us discernment. He's not leaving us abandoned. But I would much rather go through life presuming the best than not. In fact, they used to say of Pastor Chuck Smith, he used to say it, I'll give anyone face value one time around. He always presumed the person he was talking to was up front and being truthful completely in what they're talking about. But he said, once I find out that it's not true, then I don't treat you that way. But see, like David, he presumed the best. I think it's really important in Jesus' name that in our day and age that we live in and all the intensity and all the division and discord that we think the best toward others, even when they're very different than us, and, and hope for the best and try and find common ground to build relationships. With. You'll do much better in ministry, by the way. We all love Danny Guitarer as our new worship leader, and when I call them and ask them to do a memorial for a Catholic family, and, you know, with the Latino culture, it can go either way because some Latinos are pro. They can do really well in a Catholic environment because most of them come from a Catholic environment like myself. But some are just so profoundly anti-Catholic. They, they won't even address they, their risks in the family. And I can't speak for what other families have been through, but I can tell you I was really happy that Daniel Gutierrez was willing to go to a Catholic memorial and play worship songs that we sing here in this church. And aren't you glad he was willing to go and do that? Aren't you glad that, that he was there to bring Jesus, that common ground of Jesus, and do that? That's much better than the nuclear option. And there's ministry. Now we read on. So it's war. They declared war. When you, when you shave their beards and strip them naked from the waist down, man, you just, it's an act of war. Verse 8. Now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men and then the people of, oh he sent all the army of the mighty men. Did you catch that? This is David's mighty men. Why would you do this? This is David. All of the mighty men. Man, it's bad news for Ammon. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw the battle line was against him before and behind... And they were surrounded. He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. See, that's your matchup because the Syrians are the stronger military. He takes his best and say, you face the Syrians. Verse 11. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Amnon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Amnon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. That is the Syrians. And when the people of Amnon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. Now, when the Syrians saw they had been defeated by Israel, 
They're not done yet. They sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river, uh, and Shofak, the commander of Hazadazar's army, went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel. See, it's just escalation. Offer shaving guys' beards, stripping them from the waist down and not presuming the best. Mm. When it was told David, he gathered all of Israel, crossed over the Jordan. And by the way, when Jordan, when David, King David crosses the Jordan River, that is not good for the people on the east side. And he came upon them and set up in battle array against them. So when David had set up in the battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians. And he killed Shofak, the commander of the army. And when the servants of Hasidazar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Amnon anymore. And that is a beatdown. Why? 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 We see in Israel a couple times where a city was going to be besieged and a wise woman saved the city. Just one wise woman saved the city. Man, I wonder what the women of Ammon thought as this was going on, as her sons were dying, as her husbands were dying. Just, it, this really happened. And this is, a, this is an amazing story with different lessons in it. Just the thought of verse 8, studying David's mighty men. That Joab and Joab, we've said, Joab's a bad dude. No one could take Jebus for 400 years. David says, whoever takes it gets to be the commander of the army. And Joab goes in there and just gets it done. Remodels the whole city. Paves the streets, new, new corners and calles. And <laughs> like, this guy gets it done. And this guy's a ruthless warrior. He's the guy you want on your side in war. And he's showing up with all of David's mighty men. These are the best, this is elite military force at the highest level. Syrians were no match for them whatsoever. And even though they're surrounded, it's like the song, I might seem like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Some of you know that praise song. When you're the Lord's people and you're in his will and you're doing what must be done, even the difficult things, you got to know the Lord surrounding you. And even it seems like you're surrounded in time, space, and matter, we're surrounded by the heavenly host in the eternal realm, and they've got our back. Like Elisha said to his servant, there's more of us than them. Lord opened his eyes in that famous story when they're surrounded by the Syrian army. And then God opened his servant's eyes and he saw all the angelic host, the chariots of heaven surrounding them, surrounding the Syrian army that had been surrounding them. See, we only see this dimension, but through eyes of faith, we see both dimensions. We need to realize the Lord is always with us and he's got us. And I love how Joab, the mystery man in the Bible, Joab says, Hey, the Lord is good. Let him do what's good. But we need to fight for our families, our cities, and we need to do what we need to do. That's an a, a apex mark in this story. And so Joab did get the victory. But then the Syrians got beat the first time. But they want to get paid. You don't get paid for losing. So they got to, they, you know, they, or maybe they did, but they're not happy they lost. So they go get more of their buddies. And they get, the, they get the beat down the second time. And they go from being hired mercenaries to being servants of David. You just never want to make mistakes like this as a believer of Jesus Christ. And you're saying, how would I make mistakes like this? Who do you do business with? Which family members you pick a fight with for no reason? Why you provoke the boss? Why you provoke coworkers? Why you didn't let some dispute work itself out before you end up at small claims court? Stuff like that. Like this, this is just, these are principles of conflict. Jesus said, make it right before you go to court so it's not a situation. 
People get arbitration to settle disputes. It's just so much better. Life is so short. Presume the best, hope the best, be the best, and do what you got to do in a difficult time and make things right that have to be made right. And they had to be made right here. They, they had to do this. They had, they, had, they had to go to this war. They had to do this and go out with confidence. You see the fear? I couldn't help but notice what unbelief gets you. When you live in fear, I say this occasionally, but back in the 70s. No, okay, that says it all right there. Back in the 70s, in my teen years, you know, we had all these small-time weed dealers. They, they sold pot, right? You know, you have a lid of pot and stuff like that. And then by the late 70s, Coke was coming in, and, you know, there's still some acid around that people did or psychedelic mushrooms. And I, I knew, like, quite a few small-time drug dealers. And I'm telling you, and you guys know this, once they're on drugs, they could never enjoy it. They're always looking out the window. They're looking. They're, someone's buying drugs like, he's a narc. I know he's a narc. I know he's a narc. No, no, it's, it's, it's Bill's friend. He's a surfer from the kid. No, he's a narc. You're like, you, you just, your mind just goes. <laughs> I can remember a friend saying, dude, they're out there. I know they're out there. I'm like, I don't see anybody out there. <laughs> like, you just, you just, once you go to fear and unbelief, man, you may, it, it's a vortex. You may, it's a black hole. It's like, it's gravity. They may never come out of it. That, that's what happens. The, 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 wicked, the wicked can enjoy their money, the Proverbs basically says, because they're always in fear. They're always in fear. The wicked, there's no peace for the wicked, the Lord says in his word, because they're always in fear. And like that was the whole trap of the last few years with everything that happened on this planet was to drink the Kool-Aid of fear. Fear, 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 fear. And you still see people walking around in like, like zombies in a, a 50s, Science fiction movies still living in fear. They never pulled out of it. They, 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 they drank it and they're, they can't come out of it. And people that live by faith and common sense are doing quite fine. But fear perpetuates itself. And governments know that fear sells. And companies know that fear sells. And often government works with companies to sell fear and they all get rich. Don't Drink the drink of fear. Faith in Jesus, he's got us, common sense. When you come to what you don't know, the fear of an entire planet, you fall back on what you do know, the word of the Lord and the role of the church and the place of the body of Christ in human experience. See, I never lost my way during the last three years of craziness because my compass says Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is what the Bible says, that we always are and who we always will be, regardless of what's going on around us. And we're not going to drink fear around here. We'll do our best, but we're not going to, we're not going to go to fear in the name of witnessing to non-believers. We're going to stand in faith, and we're going to show you what faith looks like with common sense and respect, going back to the previous point of trying to understand people. But see, it perpetuates itself. So the Syrian army, they start, they, oh, and then what, is the, what do the Ammonites do? Oh, and they oh, everyone's in fear. And they're just waiting for the next beatdown because fear always expects worse things to happen. But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen, with an expectation that God has great things around the corner for us. It, it's, there is common sense and prudence in being prepared for a bad day. We're not discounting that. That's health insurance, that's car insurance, that's life insurance. 
There's emergency insurance, you know, if you will. But still, man, the fear meter was at peak level on the entire planet. And people went out of their minds. If there were aliens, which there aren't, and they wanted to get a good laugh, they could have just laughed over the last three years. That would have been free alien entertainment. Watching those people create an image of God's glory, check out their faith in God, and just completely lose their sense of direction from the Lord and his word. This is why I say those core values, the absolute authority of God's word over everything from Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God, the person, the work, and the promises of Jesus Christ. Absolute authority over the universe because all things are made by him and for him and him all things consist. Those are two foundations that we'll never lose our way in. The sureness of God's promises. They, They don't not apply because people think it's the end of the world. They'll always apply because God promised them and he doesn't lie. Perfect love casts out all fear. If we were trusting in perfect love, in those events of the last three years or in the future challenges and trials and tribulations that we face in our life, if we're trusting in perfect love, it will cast out all fear. God promises it. It's far better to look under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, than to run with fear with the Syrians and the Ammonites with our tail between our legs. It's a bad witness, too, for the kingdom. And whether we passed some tests or failed some tests in our life's history, like the song we were singing with Joe, God redeems those mistakes, and we're still a work of art, and we're canvas still being painted. I don't feel I failed with the test of fear so much in the last three years, but I have plenty of other failures. So I'm glad the canvas isn't done and the story's not done for me or for you because we're all still here today. Joab said, be strong for our people and for our cities. And in that cruxable moment, that key moment where it's all just such a serious apex I mean, it's, it's war, and they're surrounded, and they have two fronts, and they make this plan, this simple battle plan. Hey, if there's a breach, you come shore up our left flank. If there's a breach, we'll come shore up your right flank, whatever it is. But this exhortation, be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. See, what gives us courage in the human experience is high motivation. When there's low motivation, there's, there's not a lot of courage. But when the stakes are high, then there should be courage. And high motivation for high stakes. Look what, look what Joab said here. Hey, listen, right now, right now, it's us or them. It's our wives and our households and our kids, or it's their wives, their household, and their kids. And God is with us. We didn't start this fight right now for our God, for our family, for your home, for the people. Right now, be courageous and let's go. That's how we have to think. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the Great Commission, When it comes to the work of the Spirit over our life, we need to be courageous and we need to be highly motivated. We need to be motivated for the good work of the Lord in our life, for the good sanctifying work in our hearts and our minds. We need to have a high motivation for the most important things in our lives, which is our transformation to become more like Christ. We need to be highly motivated for spiritual things. If you're married, for your marriage. Highly motivated to pray for your kids and your grandkids because the stakes are high. We need to be serious about serious things. And this is a serious thing. And we need to to not be in a stupor, but we need to understand what's at stake, what's really going on, and be highly motivated, be courageous for spiritual things. And do what must be done.
and trust in the Lord. So I quote Joab again, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So not so much the WG, but the greater body of Christ. And to the man I look at in the mirror, I say, let's be really motivated because I know you're motivated. That's why I say that for you. But man, let's be motivated for critical things and serious things. And that's the things of the kingdom. I'm highly motivated for the Great Commission and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think most of you are too. It's worth fighting for. The beacon of truth on this planet, whether it's in the African continent, Asia, or in America, just legal or illegal, to shine for Christ like a city on a hill. And however it plays out, it plays out. But to be faithful, you only got one chance in life to be courageous and be highly motivated for the things that really matter. Now, we get chapter 20. It's a short chapter. Just eight verses, and it's continuing conquest. Chapter 20, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time that kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Amnon. See, the story's not quite done. And came and besieged Rabah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That's when he had the uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. That's all there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And Joab defeated Rabah and overthrew it. Then David took their king's crown from his head and found it, uh, a way to talent of gold. And there, was a, there were precious stones in it. And it was set on David's head, like he conquered, right? Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Should have just received the goodwill greetings, huh? Should have just said, well, thank you for the comfort. Thank you. I appreciate the thought. What a wonderful card. I'm going to send you a thank you card for sending me uh, envoys of comfort. I mean, like, we need to really think, man, this, 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 this story is incredible. Because, again, back in verse 7, 6, it says, The people of Ammon saw that they made themselves repulsive to David. More than they thought. <laughs> they lost their loved ones. They lost their wealth. And they even lost their freedom over folly and bad counsel of ungodly people motivated and moved by fear and the counsel of fools. So just yet again a reminder, worship generation body of Christ, let our counsel come from the word of God and godly men and godly women and godly influences. That's our counsel. Our counsel for good decisions in all things is the word of God, godly men, godly women, and godly influences. That's our counsel. And it's one thing to be entertained. Just make sure that doesn't become your godly counsel, right? That's the tricky thing there. Like, entertainment can distract. We need to be serious about serious things. And these guys, it's just, wow. It's, it's crazy when you realize what they did to themselves. As I mentioned, these events happened, according to 2 Samuel, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. After he confessed his adultery with Bathsheba, he would have come onto the scene and God would have given him these victories where Joab actually won the battles but made sure David came there and took the credit for it. So we even kind of see like God's mercy there in his failures that even after his failures that he was able to be associated with these great victories. 
I just think like when David and Joab and everyone came home from Amnon, because they stopped fighting in the wintertime. So the previous chapter was pre-winter, and then they took a break in the winter. And all those people in Amnon had to sit in their walled-in cities going like, man, they're coming back. They're going to come back in the springtime because kings go to war in the springtime. And sure enough, they came back. Not only had they made bad decisions, they had about four months to think about what was next because of their bad decisions. Make good decisions. I literally read the book of Proverbs every day, literally every day, to remind myself, make good decisions. Common sense. I read my devotion through the word in the morning, but I read Proverbs every night. Kind of the last thing I said in my mind every night is like, hey, make good decisions and be fruitful. Because this is stuff that happens when you don't make good decisions. The compound effect. But that's them. That's not us. But still, you want to go like, whoa, definitely don't want it to be us. Hope for all things. Believe all things. Tolerance in the proper context of the word. And like Joab said, may the Lord do what's good in his sight. Now, the Philistines come back in the picture to end the night. <laughs> the Philistines, they just, they just keep coming with giants. Verse 4. Now, it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines. That's modern Gaza, southwest Israel. At which time, Sibekai the Hushethite killed Sipai, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. Again, there was a war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. So that's Goliath's brother. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. It was a modernized weapon. Verse 6, yet again there was war at Gath where there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot, and he, and he also was born to the, to the giant. Now this guy with his extra toes and fingers, much like a Ripley's Believe It or Not, but it happens, he defiled Israel. See, he, here's the distinction with this giant. He defiled Israel. He, he, he just was... He, 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 he picked the fight with the people of God. And Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. David's nephew from his third brother, brother number three, killed the giant. That's awesome. You think Uncle David inspired because you think of all the extended relatives, you got all those brothers, so you got all these cousins. I mean, I mean, they're like their family reunion, you know, their Fourth of July picnic was probably pretty active, right? Someone probably burned their hands with the fireworks, right? Like, this is a big family, a lot of people. So now this big family, remember the brothers were jealous of David originally, and this brother, brother number three, Shimea, was one of the three with the army of Israel in 1 Samuel 17 when David came with the food that his dad sent him. Remember the brother's like, hey, what are you doing here? You just came to spy out the war. And David's like, what's that giant doing out there defying the God of Israel? So this is one of those three brothers. And, of course, David became king within a couple decades. And now this older brother has a son, a nephew to David. And he replicates the feet of David. In the family line of greatness for the house of Jesse... He's the guy that's on record for doing something really special. He killed a giant. It's like, hey, you know, I'm just thinking at the family barbecue for Memorial Weekend, David probably gave him a little more time. I'm just thinking like, hey, yeah, Jonathan, how you doing, buddy? And what's up? 
Because giant killers have that in common, you know. When they see each other, they do this. Because they kill giants. They have a fellowship of giant killing. They're warriors. They're, they're people of courage. They elevate people. They inspire people. They're leaders. When David looked at this household of all his relatives and cousins and nephews and cousins twice removed and four times removed, times two. He looked at this guy. Hey, what's up, Jonathan? How's it going? How's things in the field? This day? That's good, man. It's good. Hey, dude, you know the king? Yeah, it's Uncle David, man. Giant killers. See, we got the same medal on the wall. You get a gold medal when you kill giants. When you kill Philistine giants, you get a gold medal. He got his, I got mine. When are you going to get yours? You see, like that, there's different fellowships for different things in life. And this is David's nephew, and he killed not just any giant, the giant with extra fingers and toes who defiled the Israel. He was a trash talker. So he's like Goliath. These other giants were not told that. This guy talks smack with all of his fingers and toes. Yeah? So here's a thought to end the night on. And it's a good thought. It's worth contemplating. David inspired other people. Of course, he inspired his mighty men. In his own household, this first is a nephew. This is a direct bloodline. This nephew was inspired to repeat a generation later the successes of David by defeating a Philistine giant. And this really is where you get the end of the Philistines. They're just nobody after this in Bible history. You don't really get them anymore after this point. They just, they just kind of dissipated in history. David kind of started it, and then, I don't know, maybe his nephew and these guys are the ones that closed it out. These were human beings with an interesting gene pool. They were, tall, you know, by description, maybe nine feet tall. They were big guys, and, and uh, they, they were what they were, and they, they, they hated God, and they hated God's people. And they're at war, and they wanted to kill people. They hate them that much, and they wanted to subjugate God's people to their gods, Dagon. And this is, there's, there's, there's no middle ground tolerance on this one. It's war, and there's going to be a winner and a loser. And that's how it is, like us fighting the devil. It's war. It's just, there's no handshaking on this one, and there's just no middle ground. It's just light and darkness and heaven and hell and life and death and justification and condemnation. That's how it was. But this got me thinking about Jonathan. I've been talking about being serious, but we also want to be uh, students. Because, you know, like, success is, is, you can learn things from success in any field. Like, some of you are very, very successful at what you do. And even, like, Haley, for example, has been learning a lot about real estate and flipping properties and bids and, uh, you know, flipping and stuff like that. She's learning stuff. Now, if you want to make money flipping houses, there's people that do it very successfully. So you find out who they are. Success is replicable. You can learn success from other people. The easiest thing to do is something that someone else has done successfully, and you can study and learn it. I learned a lot about real estate by first talking to Luke Caldwell, who's extremely successful with real estate investments and being a landlord, and I learned a lot from him, got inspired by him, and then I did a lot of my own research and understanding, and I learned a lot about owning houses and landlording and tenants and laws, and I know this and I know that. I don't know as much as a lot of people, but I know more than most, and I need to. Because what you know is your asset, what you don't know is your liability. So I decided I wanted to make money owning houses. I studied people who did, and lo and behold, there's a success trail that you can learn from. I wanted to learn about the history of Africa and missions in Africa, so I spent like a whole week studying David Livingston. I learned a lot about David Livingston, Dr. Livingston, I presume. I learned a lot about African tribes. I spent an hour of my life studying the history of Ghana. You know, and you learn a lot. You learn a lot. See, 
Because in my foundation with the Joy Brand Ministry Foundation, the focal point is global missions, but the first five, 10-year target is Africa and the Calvary Chapel movement in Africa. So I'm making myself an expert on every Calvary Chapel in Africa. I'm making myself educated in all 57 countries in Africa, and to some degree their history, and the history of the church in Africa. What the church is doing in Africa right now, I'm also studying global missions on a broader scale, because I'm going to step into eternity, and I'm turning over a foundation to capable people to advance the gospel in future generations. But we start with Africa. So I've got a major in Africa and a minor in global missions. And I've got another major going, almost like a postgraduate, on foundations. I've been studying foundations. I know probably, not in a boastful way, more than most of you about foundations. Because God led me that way. He led me to see the Henry Ford Foundation by a rabbit trail studying Henry Ford. I thought, this is amazing, 16 words and these endowments. And lo and behold, that's the model for everybody. But God showed it to me before I ever saw it in a book. He said, this is what you're going to do with the Great Commission and the Gospel. So the point is this. If you want to be successful at something, study someone who is successful at it. Because what you don't know is your liability, and what you do know is your asset. So if you want to kill giants, hang out with giant killers. Ask them how they did it. How they felt the first time they saw the giant. What did they think? Like, if you want to be successful at something, study people that are successful at it. And you will find that most people that are successful at something are more than willing to share with you how they became successful. I've learned this great discovery at 62. I'm thinking, where was I at 32? But I'd rather learn at 62 than not at all. Jonathan was a giant killer. And he learned how to kill giants from Uncle David. Success is replicable and can be learned. So as you think about your dream and you think about what you believe God might be calling you to do, go from a wish to a reality and start doing your homework and figure out, look at those people that are successful at what you want to do and how you replicate it. Because you just reverse engineer success in that field and that's how you learn how to do it. That's what I do with real estate. That's how I'm learning about with missions around the world, history missions in Africa. And that's how I'm learning about foundations. I'm just studying people who are successful and I'm learning stuff. That's how you do it. So if you're going to kill giants, talk with the giant killers. Study them and learn from them. And then give them a fist pump when you see them at the family barbecue. Because it's rare, it's rare territory to kill giants. But shouldn't we be motivated like Joab for our walk, our loved ones, our relationships, obedience to the Lord, consecration by the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the kingdom, future generation with the next group of kids we see. Like we, ah, yeah, motivated. And the greatness isn't to be measured by someone else's greatness. The greatness is simply to be the very best we can be with what God is putting on our heart to do with our life. So be great. Hang out with giant killers, kill your giants, and shine for the Lord.